Chapter 6 Can willpower be strengthened? Preferably without feeling David Blaine's pain. The more the body suffers, the more the spirit flowers. David Blaine's philosophy borrowed from Saint-Simeon Stylites, a 5th century ascetic who lived for decades atop a pillar in the Syrian desert. We wish to consider a scientific explanation for David Blaine. We don't mean an explanation for why Blaine does what he does. That's impossible, at least for psychologists and probably for psychiatrists, too. When he is not doing his famous magic tricks, Blaine works as a self-described endurance artist, performing feats involving willpower instead of illusion. He stood for 35 hours more than 80 feet above New York's Bryant Park without a safety harness atop a round pillar just 22 inches wide. He spent 63 sleepless hours in Times Square encased in a giant block of ice. He was entombed in a coffin with six inches of headroom for a week, during which he consumed nothing except water. He later went on to conduct another water-only fast, whose results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, a loss of 54 pounds in 44 days. He spent those 44 days without food, suspended above the Thames River in a sealed, transparent box, inside which the temperatures range from sub-freezing to 114 degrees Fahrenheit. Breaking the comfort zone seems to be the place where I always grow, says Blaine, echoing Saint-Simeon's notion that suffering makes the spirit flower. We won't attempt to analyze that rationale. The why is beyond our ken. We're interested in the how of Blaine's feats. How he endures is a mystery that matters to people who aren't endurance artists. Whatever one thinks of his ordeals, or his psyche, it would be useful to figure out what keeps him going. If we could isolate his secret for fasting 44 days, maybe the rest of us could use it to last until dinner. If we knew how he endured a week of being buried alive, we might learn how to sit through a two-hour budget meeting. Exactly what does he do to build and sustain his willpower? How, for instance, did Blaine not immediately give up when everything went wrong during his attempt to break the world record for breath-holding? He'd spent more than a year preparing for this feat by learning to fill his lungs with pure oxygen and then remain immobile underwater, conserving oxygen by expending as little energy as possible. Blaine could relax so completely, both mentally and physically, that his heart rate would drop to below 50 beats per minute, sometimes below 20. During a practice session at a swimming pool at Grand Cayman Island, his pulse dropped by 50% as soon as he began the breath hold, and he kept his head underwater for 16 minutes with little apparent stress. He emerged, just shy of the world record of 16 minutes 32 seconds, looking serene and reporting that he hadn't felt any pain and had barely been aware of his body or surroundings. But several weeks later, when he went on Oprah to try to break the world record in front of judges from Guinness, there were a couple of complications in addition to the pressure of performing for a television audience. Instead of floating face down in a pool, he had to face the studio audience from inside of a giant glass sphere. To remain vertical and not float to the surface, he had to keep his feet wedged into straps at the bottom of the sphere. As he filled his lungs with oxygen, he worried that the muscular effort to keep his feet in place would eat up too much oxygen. His pulse was higher than usual, 
and when he started holding his breath, it stayed above 100 instead of plummeting. To make matters worse, he could hear his racing pulse on a heart rate monitor that had inadvertently been placed too close to the sphere, continually distracting and distressing him with its rapid beep, beep, beep. By the second minute, his pulse was 130, and he realized he wasn't going to be able to control it. It remained above 100 as the minutes ticked by and his body used up its oxygen. Instead of being lost in a state of meditative bliss, he was acutely aware of his racing pulse and the excruciating buildup of carbon dioxide inside his body. By the eighth minute, he was barely halfway to the record and convinced he wouldn't make it. By the tenth minute, his fingers were tingling as his body shunted blood from the extremities to preserve vital organs. By the twelfth minute, his legs were throbbing and his ears were ringing. By the thirteenth minute, he feared that the numbness in his arm and the pain in his chest were precursors to a heart attack. A minute later, he felt contractions in his chest and was nearly overwhelmed with the impulse to breathe. By the fifteenth minute, his heart was skipping beats and his pulse was erratic, jumping to 150, down to 40, back over 100. Now convinced that a heart attack was coming, he released his feet from the straps so that the emergency team could pull him out of the sphere when he blacked out. He floated upward, forcing himself to remain just below the surface, still expecting to black out at any second, when he heard the audience cheer and realized that he'd broken the old record of 16 minutes, 32 seconds. He looked at the clock and held on until the next minute, emerging from the water with a new Guinness record of 17 minutes, 4 seconds. This was a whole other level of pain, he said shortly afterward. I still feel as if somebody hit me in the stomach with the hardest punch they could. So how did he will his way through it? That's where the training comes in, he said. It gives you the confidence to pull through a situation that isn't so easy. By training, he didn't simply mean his recent exercises and breath holding, although there had been plenty of them during the previous year. Each morning, he'd do a series of ordinary breath holds, starting with regular air instead of pure oxygen, separated by short intervals, gradually increasing the duration and the pain. Over the course of an hour, he'd end up holding his breath for 48 minutes, and then he'd have a pounding headache for the rest of the day. Those daily breathing drills got his body used to the pain of carbon dioxide buildup. But just as important were the other kinds of exercises he'd been conducting for more than three decades, since the age of five. He had long been a believer in the notion that willpower is a muscle that can be strengthened. He picked up this idea partly through reading about the Victorian training of his childhood hero, Houdini, and partly by trial and error. Growing up in Brooklyn, Blaine forced himself to practice card tricks hour after hour, day after day. He learned to win swimming races by not coming up for air the entire length of the pool, and then, with practice, eventually won $500 in bets by swimming five lengths underwater. In the winter, he eschewed a coat, wearing only a T-shirt even when walking for miles on bitterly cold days. He regularly took cold baths and conducted the occasional barefoot run in the snow. He slept on the wooden floor of his bedroom and once spent two straight days in a closet. His tolerant mother brought him food. He got in the habit of continually setting goals that had to be met, like running so far every day or jumping to grab a leaf from the branch of a certain tree every time he walked under it. At age 11, 
After reading about fasting in the novel Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse, he tried it himself and soon got up to four days on just water. By age 18, he managed a 10-day fast with just water and wine. Once he became a professional endurance artist, he reverted to the same techniques before a stunt, including little rituals that had nothing directly to do with a stunt. Some sort of OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, kicks in whenever I'm about to do a long-term challenge, he told us. I make tons of weird goals for myself, like when I'm jogging in the park in the bike lane, whenever I go over a drawing of a biker, I have to step on it. And not just step on it. I have to hit the head of the biker perfectly with my foot so that it fits right under my sneaker. Little things like that annoy anyone running with me, but I believe if I don't do them, I won't succeed. But why believe that? Why would stepping on the drawing of a biker help you hold your breath longer? Getting your brain wired into little goals and achieving them, that helps you achieve the bigger things you shouldn't be able to do, he said. It's not just practicing the specific thing. It's always making things more difficult than they should be and ever falling short so that you have that extra reserve, that tank, so you know you can always go further than your goal. For me, that's what discipline is. It's repetition and practice. These exercises certainly appear to work for Blaine, but his endurance feats hardly constitute scientific evidence or a model for anyone else. David Blaine is about as far as you can get from a random sample. A child who voluntarily takes cold baths and goes on four-day fasts is not representative of any known population. Maybe Blaine's feats are mainly due not to his training, but to the willpower that he was born with. Perhaps all the training was simply evidence of how unusually disciplined he always was. He, like the Victorians, thought that training strengthened his willpower like a muscle, but maybe he just happened to start off with a very strong muscle. To see if these training techniques really worked or could make a difference for anyone else, you would need to test them with people who were not endurance artists the sort of people who would never regard a saint living on a pillar as a role model. Willpower Workouts To social scientists, the idea of strengthening willpower didn't seem very promising at first glance. After all, the ego depletion experiments in Baumeister's lab showed that exertions of willpower left people with less self-control. Choosing radishes over chocolate chip cookies caused an immediate depletion of willpower, and there was no reason to assume the same sort of exercise could eventually lead to more strength in the long term. Still, if there was any possibility of strengthening willpower, the payoff could be enormous. Once the first ego depletion research findings were published, the research group huddled to discuss ways of increasing willpower. Mark Moorhaven, the graduate student who had designed and carried out the first experiments to show ego depletion, discussed strength-building exercises with his advisors, Baumeister and Diane Tice. Because no one had any idea what might work, they decided on a scattershot approach. They would assign different participants different exercises and see if any new strength developed. One obvious problem was that some people would start out with more self-control than others, just as some athletes would start out with bigger muscles and more stamina. To control for that, the researchers would have to do the equivalent of measuring individual changes in muscle power and stamina. 
They would first bring college students into the lab for an initial baseline test of self-control, followed by a quick depleting task to see how much it declined. Then everyone would be sent home to perform some kind of exercise on their own for a couple of weeks, followed by another round of tests in the lab. Different exercises were chosen to test various notions of what was involved in character building, or more precisely, which mental resources had to be fortified. Did acts of self-control deplete you because of the energy needed to override one response in favor of another? Or was it the energy required to monitor your behavior, or the energy to alter your state of mind? One group of students was sent home with instructions to work on their posture for the next two weeks. Whenever they thought of it, they were to try to stand up straight or sit up straight. Since most of these, or any, college students were used to casually slouching, the exercises would force them to expend energy overriding their habitual response. A second group was used to test the notion that willpower was exhausting because of the energy required for self-monitoring. These students were told to record whatever they ate for the next two weeks. They didn't have to make any changes to their diet, though it was possible that some of them might have been shamed into a few adjustments. Hmm, Monday, pizza and beer. Tuesday, pizza and wine. Wednesday, hot dogs and Coke. Hmm, maybe it would look better if I ate a salad or an apple now and then. A third group was used to check the effects of altering one's state of mind. They were instructed to strive for positive moods and emotions during the two weeks. Whenever they found themselves feeling bad, these students should strive to cheer themselves up. Sensing a potential winner, the researchers elected to make this group twice as large as the other groups so as to get the most statistically reliable results. But the researchers' hunch was dead wrong. Their favorite strategy turned out to do no good at all. The large group that practiced controlling emotions for two weeks showed no improvement when the students returned to the lab and repeated the self-control tests. In retrospect, this failure seems less surprising than it did back then. Emotion regulation does not rely on willpower. People cannot simply will themselves to be in love or to feel intense joy or to stop feeling guilty. Emotional control typically relies on various subtle tricks, such as changing how one thinks about the problem at hand or distracting oneself. Hence, practicing emotional control does not strengthen your willpower. But other exercises do help, as demonstrated by the groups in the experiment that worked on their posture and recorded everything they ate. When they returned to the lab after two weeks, their scores on the self-control test went up, and the improvement was significantly higher by comparison with the control group, which did no exercise of any kind during the two weeks. This was a striking result, and with careful analyses of the data, the conclusions became clearer and stronger. Unexpectedly, the best results came from the group working on posture. That tiresome old advice, sit up straight, was more useful than anyone had imagined. By overriding their habit of slouching, the students strengthened their willpower and did better at tasks that had nothing to do with posture. The improvement was most pronounced among the students who had followed the advice most diligently, as measured by the daily logs the students kept of how often they forced themselves to sit up or stand up straight. The experiment also revealed an important distinction in self-control between two kinds of strength, power and stamina. At the first lab session, 
Participants began by squeezing a spring-loaded hand grip for as long as they could, which had been shown in other experiments to be a good measure of willpower, not just physical strength. Then, after expending mental energy through the classic try-not-to-think-of-a-white-bear task, they did a second hand grip task to assess how they fared when willpower was depleted. Two weeks later, when they returned to the lab after working on their posture, their scores on the initial hand grip tests didn't show much improvement, meaning that the willpower muscle hadn't gotten more powerful. But they had much more stamina, as evidenced by their improved performance on the subsequent hand grip test administered after the researchers tried to fatigue them. Thanks to the students' posture exercises, their willpower didn't get depleted as quickly as before, so they had more stamina for other tasks. You could try the two-week posture experiment to improve your own willpower, or you could try other exercises. There's nothing magical about sitting up straight, as researchers subsequently discovered when they tested other regimens and found similar benefits. You can pick and choose from the techniques they studied or extrapolate to create your own system. The key is to concentrate on changing a habitual behavior. One simple way to start is by using a different hand for routine tasks. Many habits are linked to your dominant hand. Right-handed people, in particular, tend to use their right hands for all sorts of things without giving the matter the slightest thought. Making yourself switch to your left hand is thus an exercise in self-control. You can resolve to use your left hand instead of your habitual right hand for brushing your teeth, using a computer mouse, opening doors, or lifting a cup to your lips. If it seems too onerous to do this all day, try it for a set period. Some research studies have assigned people to switch hands between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. This lets people revert to their familiar habits in the evening when they are already physically tired and mentally depleted from the day's activities. Note to lefties. This strategy may not be as effective for you, because many left-handed people are actually fairly ambidextrous and have had more practice using their right hands in a world oriented for right-handed people. So using your right hand may not do as much for your willpower. No strain, no gain. Another training strategy is to change your speech habits, which are also deeply ingrained and therefore require effort to modify. You could, for instance, try speaking only in complete sentences. Break the adolescent habit of peppering your discourse with like and you know constantly. Avoid abbreviations so that you always call everything by its full name. Say yes and no instead of yeah or yup, nah or nope. You could also try avoiding those traditionally taboo words, curses. Today, this taboo strikes many people as outdated, maybe even nonsensical. Why should society produce a set of words that everybody knows, but nobody is allowed to say out loud? But the value of having forbidden words may lie precisely in the exercise of resisting the impulse to say them. Any of these techniques should improve your willpower and could be a good warm-up for tackling a bigger challenge, like quitting smoking or sticking to a budget. But you may find it tough to keep up these techniques for very long. Sticking to arcane exercises that don't offer an obvious reward can be a daunting challenge, as researchers discovered when they followed up on the first willpower-strengthening experiments. The initial results caused great excitement among psychologists because self-control was one of only two traits known to produce a wide spectrum of benefits, and the other trait, intelligence, had turned out to be quite difficult to improve. 
Programs like Head Start boosted intellectual performance while the students were enrolled, but the gains seemed to fade pretty quickly once they left. By and large, there didn't seem to be much you could do to increase the intelligence you were born with. That made self-control seem especially precious, and social scientists set out testing systematic programs for improving it. The result, over the course of a decade, was a mix of successes and flops, as researchers discovered the difficulty in getting people to do the assigned exercises. It wasn't enough to find a workout that could theoretically build willpower. It had to be a workout that worked. 